Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations, and today you'll be hearing from the late Dr. George Scipioni, who just recently went to be with Jesus on January 22nd, 2020. George was married to Eileen and had five children. George was a part of the origins of the biblical counseling movement. He was directly discipled by Jay Adams, known as the father of biblical counseling, foundational to CCEF and the biblical counseling movement. George opened the office of CCEF in San Diego, serving as its director in 1982. In 2008, George moved to Pittsburgh and for 10 years directed the Biblical Counseling Institute in Wilkinsburg, PA. George has written two books, The Battle for the Biblical Family and Timothy, Titus, and You. George and his wife Eileen were and are good friends of Eternal City Church, counseling many of our members through their darkest times. I had the privilege of interviewing George on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and today you will be hearing that interview. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful opportunity that you've blessed us with to think deeply about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage. Uh, Father, you have made clear your will in your word, and I pray that your will would be clear to us tonight. Open our eyes to things we've not seen, open our ears to things we've not heard, and show us um, what your will is for marriage, uh, for divorce, and for remarriage, and may we be a light to this dark culture, Father. Uh, I pray that they would look in on us and see an alternative reality and that it's a good thing, Father, to walk by your statutes and commands and your will. So help us, please, in these moments. Give George wisdom. Give him words to say. Give him quick answers. And, Father, give him uh, insight and help him to remember things that he has long knew. Um, and, Father, I pray that each person in here would hear from you tonight, ultimately. Be with the kids. Uh, thank you for their opportunity to enjoy pizza together. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. George, thank you again so much. It was awesome. Um, first thing, David Paulison from CCEF said this. He said that there is two main uh, people that come into his network of counselors, and they're people who are not married, who are looking to be married, and there's people who are married and are not looking to be married. <laughs> is that similar to your experience as down at BCI? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Why is that? Well, because people are sinners, okay? And um, it's a natural thing to want to be married. Marriage is a good thing, unless God's gifted you to be single and content. And that's for the kingdom's sake. It's not because you want to go skiing or want to do your own thing. You know, eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. So that's a natural desire. But we also struggle as sinners with coveting. So the grass always seems greener on the other side of the, the fence. So if you're single, you go, oh, if I was only married, everything would be fine. Okay. And if you're in a bad marriage, okay, there are good marriages, but they don't come and say, hey, by the way, I'm just so blessed by God, I want to tell you how good my marriage is. So when people come in for counseling, of course, it's going to be people have problems. And uh, I always start with Matthew 7, take the log out of your own eye, because that's the dynamic. I get focused on my spouse's sins, uh, the specks in her eye, uh, the splinters in her eye, and I just want to, I want to straighten her out and take all those things out of her to make life more comfortable for me. 
because we're just inherently self-centered. How, how do you? How would you counsel someone in here who has that log in their eye? How would they take that out? How would that be a helpful thing to look at your own sin and recognize your own sinfulness and not be staring at all the, the sin of your spouse? The simple answer is you have to stand at the foot of the cross and realize why Christ died for you. If you don't understand that, you're not going to be humble. If you're not going to be humble, you're not going to be helpful. And uh, again, we get so self-centered, and we do get sinned against, and we keep focusing in on that, focusing on that, and a root of bitterness begins to form. And instead of saying, God, be merciful to me so I can be able to help the person, you know, we just really want to poke around. That's why the Jesus, you know, you got the two by four in your own eye. There's a little speck in your brother. And, you know, you're going to poke that person's eye out if you don't see clearly. That's good. So Paul in Ephesians talks about biblical headship. And he says that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Someone in this room asked, what does biblical headship look like for a man? Oh, just to give you a, uh, a picture, a mental picture, not how to do it, is, is the towel and basin. Jesus goes around on the Last Supper and he's washing feet and embarrassing them to death because that was left for the youngest or the, or the servant. And uh, he says, if I'm your Lord and Master, do this, you need to do this to one another. So the picture is, what does my wife need? How can, and, and the man's job is to put food on the table. But, but more than that, he's supposed to wash his wife with the water of the word. How can he help his wife grow closer to God? If she's not a Christian, how can he be a testimony to her? If she is a Christian, what are her weaknesses? How can I help her to grow in grace? So, so that's how to do it. Does she not know how to read the Bible? You need to teach her how to read the Bible. Uh, if she doesn't know how to pray, you need to teach her how to pray and then be an example of it. Um, um, I, I believe my wife, I'm responsible for her gifts. What are her spiritual gifts? And is she getting to use them? So God's going to ask me when I stand before him, what did you do with Eileen? How did you help her? That's why I encourage her to take courses at seminary. She works next to me. Um, I have to build my wife up in the Lord and find out what she can do and make her available to be able to do the things that she can do to build up the body of Christ. That's good. On the kind of negative side of being the head, you know, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Practically, let's say your wife's freaking out and she's angry and she might even be throwing things. Um, what would loving her in that moment, as Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her? What, what might that look like in that moment? Well, the first moment is serious, but kidding. needs to be a good goalie. <laughs> <laughs> Catch those things, put them down so she doesn't put a hole in the wall or break everything, okay? And uh, he probably doesn't need to be preaching at her, but, you know, he needs to be doing that, throwing kisses in between the punches or whatever. I mean, I mean that's really what he needs to do. Now, and, and that's not easy to know because each woman is, is, is different. My wife is a very godly woman, wonderful woman, but she's different than yours, you know? So... I had to learn to help her. Uh, when we first got together and we're married, 
Uh, I grew up with a father that told jokes all the time. There was never a situation in which a joke was not appropriate, and that would calm anything down if you told a good joke. Well, I tried telling jokes to my wife. This is not helping. This is the proverbial gasoline on the fire. You don't love me. You're making fun of me. No, I'm not making fun of you. I'm just trying to make you laugh. Okay. Bottom line is, someone else's wife might like jokes. Of course, my wife said, if you could tell funny jokes, it might be different. But anyway. Uh, so, so in that situation, you have to know, um, some kids... Uh, just move it away from husband and wife. Some kids need to be physically controlled or put in the shower or doused in water or whatever to calm down. Other kids just need to be held, you know, when they're little, you know, until they... <laughs> okay, probably can't hold your wife that way if she's freaking out, but, you know, uh, figure it out. Now, again, the best thing you can do is to avoid triggering those throwing things, you know, if he's contributing anything. Good. Is there a way that a husband can take, in a sense, the brunt of whatever she is upset about, and yet, if it's not his fault, not take the blame? Like, confess something. He doesn't want to confess something he didn't do. But, at the same time, Jesus took responsibility for our sin when it wasn't his fault. So, what could that look like? Boy, that's, that's a good question. But, in the context, you might say, okay, I'll pray about it, hon. You know, I hope God will convict me if I... If I if I'm provoking you in any way. Um, he doesn't want to confess wrongly something that he has done if he hasn't done it. But, you know, the main thing is praying for her. Really praying for her. I tease this way. Guys go, uh, this is not praying for your wife. Oh, Lord, thou knowest that my wife is a tough nut. Wouldst thou please crack her? <laughs> this is not interceding for your wife the way Christ did. And I said, this is the way Christ. Look, she deserves punishment, but put it on me. You know, Moses interceding for Israel. Paul saying, hey, I wish I could be cut off from Christ. It's got to be that hard attitude. God, please don't give her what she deserves. Okay, I am the, the, the head of the family. I take the brunt of it like Christ. Uh, but he also should pray, you know, don't let me and the kids suffer, you know. And there are times when a wife is wrong. I mean, if she's committing adultery, the guy can't just say, okay, I'll pray for her. He needs to get help. There's the whole Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him personally. If you've won him, you've won him. If not, two or three others, you know, that whole process. And if we love our wives, get him help. Probably one of the best things a husband can do is, hey, I'll find an older woman who's godly, and she'll teach you how to do this, Okay. And she'll tell you if, if it's me or whatever. So, you, you know, you can intervene and get her the help that she needs. And, of course, you know, take care of the kids. You know, you got her pregnant. You know, she had to care for nine months. You know, do something to lift your hand to help her, you know, around the house or whatever. Some guys will have to do more housework because their wife's physically weaker, you know, and you learn that your wife can't do this now. We move in homeschooling circles. I don't know if you all have met that, but you know. So you, you find some of those guys, you know, uh, my kid will never go to public school. You know, ah, uh, we don't do that, okay? You're right, then, okay, uh, you're homeschooling, 
Uh, what are the kids learning? I don't know. Wife's job, okay? It's, you know, seriously. And they dump it on her, and she's churning butter with one foot, you know, sewing all the clothes, right? Sewing all the clothes, you know. She's got eight kids, you know what I mean? And bottom line is she's doing all this stuff. You just want to take a guy like that and smack him upside the head and go, come on, wake up. What are you doing? You're not helping your wife. And, and this poor wife, you know, is a two-talent woman, not a five-talent woman. And she's, she's measuring herself against, you know, Queen Sheba or whatever, who's the head of the homeschool movement that can do everything. You know, like... I didn't want to get too personal, but anyway, bottom line is, you know, he needs to assess her gifts and protect her and say, honey, you don't have to be somebody else. I tell this guy at seminary all the time, you go and tell her pastorate, you tell him, my wife is my wife, period. She's not the head of the missionary group. She's not the secretary. She's not the piano player. She's got gifts and wants to use them. That's her business, but you're not getting two for one. You're hiring me, you're not hiring my wife. So guys have to protect their wives and, and assess them. That's good. Someone in this room asked, how should a spouse deal with secrets about their spouse which, which came out after getting married? Ooh, ooh. so can we, can we get this straight? Okay, you find something out about your spouse after you get married. And then it says the secrets can be things that occurred prior to marriage and were hidden. Okay, well, that's one thing. First of all, I would say, one, to prevent that, premarital counseling. Premarital counseling and absolute disclosure, period. Grimy details? Mm, Depending what details. You know, you don't need to know... uh, you know, if a person's not a virgin, they need to admit that. If they've had sex with 50 people, you know, the person needs to know that because they'd be marrying someone that may be carrying transmitted diseases. The bottom line is it's an honest, but all the gory details they don't need, okay? So the guy's sitting there going, looking for all those guys out there. Okay? You know? Uh, but, but really, uh, it, it really, seriously, our, our doctrinal standards, the the Westminster uh, standards will say if you contract a marriage and you find out that the person was lying to you about previous relationship, you know, uh, that they've made an invalid uh, marriage contract, that that could even be uh, negated because they lied. You know, so somebody's married already and they got three families strung out Baja, California, okay? You're in San Diego and you meet the guy get married and find out that he's got three other people, you know, that would be serious enough for someone to say that wasn't a valid marriage because you lied about the three other families and she wouldn't have married you if she had known that you had three other wives and a bunch of kids strung up and down Baja, California. So it depends on the nature uh, of that. Um, I knew a man who wouldn't, didn't tell his wife that he had been involved in homosexuality. She came from another country. He said, I didn't tell her. I said, why did you lie to her? It's because I was afraid she wouldn't marry me. I said, would you have? She said, no, I wouldn't have married him if I knew. Well, he, contract, he had AIDS. And he died of AIDS. She had three kids. And praise God, she didn't, or the kids didn't get AIDS. But, you know, he lied to her. You know, and she was kind. She loved him until he died and took care of the kids. But 
Um, those kinds of serious things uh, are on a different level than you know you belch at the table, you know, and you fart, and do all kinds of gross things, you know, that everybody does, and you know you didn't know that. So uh, I'm exaggerating for effect, but the point is it depends whether these are serious sins that would really negate a marriage. What if they're seriously offensive and the person can't stop thinking about them, but they're not that serious, like homosexuality and AIDS? Well, then I think they, obviously, then person needs help to get his or her thoughts and heart under control. And the whole issue is, are you willing to forgive the person? That's the whole point. If you forgive, you'll eventually forget. You know, and again, that's a whole biblical talk of what's forgiveness. I won't bring it up to God. I won't bring it up to the person. I won't bring it up to other people. And above all, I won't bring it up to me. You know, so then it's the dynamic of worry. You have to work the person through that and say, look, you can't keep recycling this and going over and over and over again. Definitively, let's get it forgiven and let's build a new relationship out of those. The people that have that problem of going over and over and over and it replays and replays, what help would you give for them? If they woman, have trouble forgiving. If it's a woman, I'd send them to my wife. <laughs> if it's a guy, I'd work with them. But just simply say, okay, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Did God sovereignly allow this to happen? Yes, for some good reason. Okay. Secondly, you know, in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Find the things that are true, lovely, of good reputation. Make your mind dwell on these things. And the things you've seen, heard, learned from me, practice these things. So what I would do is take that. The peace of God rests on those three things. A heart that's grateful instead of grumbling. Uh, a head that's disciplined instead of in the dumpster. And hands that are engaged in doing what's right instead of what's wrong. And we would try to restructure that whole thing and work that through. How can you thank God instead of grumble? How can you discipline your mind, put it, you know, put it on a chain and pull it back? How can you make a schedule to make sure you're doing what you should be doing instead of sitting there and you know, chewing this for all it's worth to, to milk it until, until you get upset again? That's a good answer. Here's another question. How would you advise people who get divorced prior to becoming a believer and would like to get married again to a believer? Well, again, that depends on the circumstances. Uh, you should never get remarried if your former spouse or spouse is alive without tr first trying to be reconciled. Do you have any biblical obligations? Did you embezzle money from that person? Did you destroy his or her reputation? All those things need to be cleared first. I don't believe even wrong divorce is the unforgivable sin. So... The bottom line is, if there's no way of being reconciled to that person, then, you know, they have to start all over again with a premarital counseling and facing all the issues. Because I tell those people in counseling all the time, if your husband dies tonight, your problems won't be over. You'll still be the same woman, same thing with the husband. You think your husband's the pro your wife's the problem. But the bottom line is, if she dies tonight... You're still you, and you're still going to be bitter, and you're still going to have these problems, and you need to deal with them. So uh, that's the first thing. Are you marriageable? 
Okay, do you have a biblical right for remarriage? Okay, and uh, if you have a biblical right for remarriage, all the regular stuff we would talk about in terms of premarital counseling, on top of, okay, what's the relationship with the ex? What about the children, if there's children involved? Uh, what about your former in-laws, okay? You know, were you married to a mafiosa type, okay? You know, are you, no, really, are you gonna, you know? I had one woman, you know, got married, and, and on her honeymoon, the ex-wife called. Called her. The sad thing in that case was the ex-wife and the wife eventually became friends. And guess, you can guess, right? Who was the big problem that they had in common? The husband. And they, they end up ganging up and beating up on him. So you have to, you have to, you know, think through all those things. You know, if you're, if you're going to marry someone, you have a legitimate you know, marriage. But if your ex is stalking you, they got to know, you know, that they're going to be fugitives and get stalked by this, you know, this ex-spouse. Because it's only fair for the person, you know, that you're going to marry to know what he or she's getting into. Another question. If, you're, if you've already gotten divorced and remarried to someone else, are you or your spouse now in sin by being married? I don't know enough of the circumstances. If you shouldn't have been divorced in the first place, yes, you're in sin. Not because the marriage is, you should have never gotten married to begin with. But to stay in that state is not sinful. So you don't say, okay, I should have never divorced the first one. I married you. I'll get rid of you. Okay? That's not the biblical answer. You're in a marriage. You stick with it. So even if, so like the committing adultery in Matthew 5, let's say that the wife is in that adulterous state or the husband is in that adulterous state, you're saying they stay married and then receive forgiveness from the cross and move on? Yes, because the point is a divorce is a divorce is a divorce, and that's where a lot of Christians don't agree. A divorce, even if it's on the wrong basis, is a divorce. You're, you're not covenantally bound to that person. So, Even if it was an unbiblical, non-sexual morality, non-abandonment? Yes, if it was non-biblical grounds, it's still a divorce. You see, of course, the verses say, well, she's committing adultery. They say, well, you must be still married in God's sight. That's why I make such an emphasis. Go back and read the Old Testament. If a divorce is a legal reality in God's sight in the Old Testament, then a divorce is a divorce is a divorce. Even if it's wrong grounds, that was sin. And God will still hold the person accountable. But the, but the new marriage, okay, should never have happened. So it's sin, but they're married now. And you don't want to compound it by getting rid of that person, which is just keep perpetuating the whole Deuteronomy 24, multiple wives or husbands or whatever. That kind of pollutes the land. Mm. Do you make a distinction between somebody who is divorced before they're a Christian? Does that, um, like say they were going to become an elder. And before they were a Christian, they were in a bad marriage. And does, it, does the newness in Christ kind of negate that whole old you? Yes and no. It depends. If you were a public figure, because there's other things that go along with this, not just the divorce. An elder has to be what? Above reproach. So if God forgives him, but the whole community remembers this kind of adulterous affair that he had, his disgrace may be so great that the church has said, we can't, you can't be an elder in this community because Christ 
reputation is at stake. And even though God has forgiven you, the bottom line is uh, everyone knows that you committed adultery when you were the uh, Pennsylvania state senator, you know, and even though God's forgiven you and that's over with, you know, at this point, uh, you don't have a clear reputation. Remember what it says in Timothy, uh, have to have a good reputation with those outside the faith. Because so, there's a double standard, right? Anybody can commit adultery in the world today. But if a Christian does it, you know, we're, we're held to God's standard when everybody else is left off. So that's the hypocrisy of the world. Can you define abuse in marriage? Emotional, uh, marital, verbal, spiritual abuse? So the question is, can you define abuse in marriage? Yes and no. Abuse is sin. Any sin is abuse. Okay? But there's a difference. Now, as the world says abuse, it's one big category, and all of it is grounds for divorce. Okay? It seems to me the scripture's pretty clear. Cutting off food, clothing, or sexual contact is specific. Putting a person's eye out or busting their tooth is pretty clear. Okay? There, there's a criteria. So we should never, you know, curse people, you know, with our mouth. But that's not the same thing as punching their lights out. Okay? So I think we have to make a distinction today because rightfully we want to protect people from verbal abuse. Okay? Um, and we, we say that hurts as much as the others. That's still not significant grounds for divorce. So I want to be real careful. Uh, uh, you could say it this way. Abuse is treating your wife or husband in a non-biblical way. So, for example, you know, the Bible says if you look at a woman, you've lusted after her in your heart, right? Every wife in America, or every, well, I can divorce my husband because he's an adulterer, right? I don't think so. I don't think that's what the, the Lord is saying. So we have to be real careful. And that's why uh, the elders of the church, the leadership, have to look at these things and say you've got grounds, you don't have grounds. So I can tell a guy and I'll yell at him for, for you know, talking meanly to his wife or whatever, but we'll say to the wife, yeah, we'll protect you from him. You can come over temporarily and be safe, but you, know, you don't have grounds for divorce. Um, Jay Adams in the book you referenced, Marriage, um, Divorce and Remarriage, he says that the idea of separating for reconciliation is a bad idea. You remember that? Do you agree with that? Uh, it depends. It's not nuanced enough. I think generally he's right. What he was trying to say is, look, when we separate, we lack pain, and we, you know, we think that's peace. It isn't. And then when people separate and they're not fighting anymore, they go, hey, this is way better. So there's less of a desire to get reconciled. But obviously, if a woman's being punched like a punching bag, they need to be separated. She needs to be protected. So generally speaking, what he's trying to say is uh, separation in the 1 Corinthians 7 passage is separation by divorce. So uh, because we're in a different legal context, separation may be necessary for physical protection. Say a wife's got a husband's running up $100,000 gambling. You know, community property, she's in for 50, you know, 50 grand. There are certain circumstances where separation legally or physically may be necessary temporarily. So while it's not the ideal, 
You know, it is, it is with mitigating circumstances. That's again why I say you have to take all mm -hmm. the whole picture into, into consideration. That's good. How dangerous is it for a married person to talk to the opposite sex about problems in their marriage? How dangerous? How dangerous is it for a married person to talk to the opposite sex about the problems in their own marriage? Tavidian. Mm. I don't think everybody knows who Tullian Tavidian is. Tullian Tavidian was the pastor of a large church, Coral Ridge Press, where D. James Kennedy, I think he might son-in-law of uh, Billy Graham, uh, big name in Christian circles, you know, and he, you know, he got in trouble. He had other problems, it turns out, before that. He had problems with, I don't think he should have ever been in the pastorate because he had multiple affairs. He, I think, obviously, he was the kind of man that didn't have self-control. So, you know, but he said... I got talking to this one woman about my wife who had committed adultery on me, and, you know, it got involved. It's dumb. Just put, bliss, plain old dumb. Why would you talk to the opposite sex to get help for your marriage? It's what the elders are there for. In a case, if there's sexual problems, a woman ought to be doing it under the elder's authority. And, you know, I don't want to talk to a woman about sexual issues. Okay, um, without a woman being there. So I think it's the dumbest idea in the world for a guy to counsel or seek counsel from the opposite sex. Today, I'll just be out front. If you got same-sex problems, don't do it with the same sex mm -hmm. alone. I'm serious. We have to be sensitive to this. Why, why create problems? Thank you. What is the woman's role in marriage? What is the man's role in marriage? Well, that's Ephesians 5. That's a, a no-brainer. The husband's to lay down his life for the wife, wash her with the water and word, and she's to follow him and be a cheerleader. Try to cheer him on in service for God. That doesn't mean she has to keep her mouth shut if he is uh, wrong. But, you know, Abigail protected a stupid husband, you know. As his name, Nabal. So is he. Remember, Abigail came out when uh, David was going to kill him, and, and she says, look, as his name, so is he. Now, I don't know if it was his nickname or his, his given name, but that's kind of interesting. His name meant fool. And, uh, you know, David was going to kill him because he dissed him. He said, oh. and, and Abigail brings the food and all, and says, look, we know God's going to take you to the throne don't come with innocent blood on your hands. That, that's a godly woman. Now, David had a real problem with women. We know that, right? It's not supposed to multiply wise, but he kind of goes, oh, that's a good one. Okay. So when, right? so when Nabal dies of a stroke or a heart attack, calls her, and she's honored. Uh, it was an honor to become the wife of the king, even though he shouldn't have had multiple wives. But uh, there was a godly woman who really protected her spouse, who was an idiot. So. Bye, guys. Thanks, And then, what about the man? So the question is, what is the man's role in marriage? You, you addressed that briefly already. Yeah. It's to be Christ-like and to develop her gifts and to protect her and help present her to Christ. Simply more godly than when you got married, and not because she had to put up with your nonsense.
Oh, he's such a, he, boy, he's such an opportunity to be sanctified because he's such an idiot. <laughs> In the positive sense, he's supposed to help her to become more godly. Yeah. Would, you, would you agree that um, if a man is living like Christ towards his wife, giving himself up for her, Submission shouldn't be a problem. It shouldn't be an issue. If he's willing to die for her and he's willing to give himself up for her continuously and constantly, submission shouldn't be a problem. And the being a helper, right, Genesis, shouldn't be a problem. Do you agree with that? Yes and no. Because, well, it is. It should be. You're right in what you're saying. But after all, she's a sinner. If she's got problems with submission because she had a bad dad or other thing. I mean, she, she may have a hard time. Let's say she was sexually molested or physically beaten. <clears throat> it's going to be hard for her to submit. So you're right. It makes it easier. But, you know, for example, if a guy is doing that, his wife isn't converted. Without the Holy Spirit, it's still going to be dead in the water. So we can't convert people. But yeah, you're right. Generally, what you're saying is right. The more I'm like Christ, the easier it is for my wife to submit. If marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, then how does divorce fit into that picture or image? Not very well. <laughs> However, as I point out, if you go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, God speaks of divorcing Israel. So... There are times when sin is so great, you know, that that covenant bond is broken. So, you know, I would say, yeah, it doesn't fit in at all. And that's one of the strong arguments when people say no divorce for any reason, because that's not showing Christ-like love. That's true. <clears throat> but, you know, if the, if the husband's trying to kill the wife, you know, if he's sexually, you know, abusing her or the kids, you know, divorce is a merciful thing. And then the importance of premarital counseling. Now, you spoke to that. Um, so let's ask a, a deeper question. What, um, what resources would you recommend for somebody who is wanting to get married to somebody, but they're maybe not married yet? Uh, and then what kind of resources would you recommend for somebody who is engaged and they're going to get married? Uh, and then what kind of resource, or you could, it could be one book, it could be whatever, a married couple... Uh, so those three people, not married, but together looking towards marriage, engaged, heading very fast towards marriage, and then married. This is the resource that God's given to Eternal City, okay? So everyone go to him for premarital counseling, okay? Uh, the, the best book, it's a little over the top in terms of a lot of work, but Wayne Mack's Preparing for Marriage God's Way is really good. And then you can just edit some of the stuff or just do chapters that are pertinent to the people. But that's, that's the best single uh, book that I know. It, its biggest lack is it doesn't talk about remarriage or even widowhood. So it doesn't, it doesn't address directly those issues that will come up you know, when you have a second marriage for someone. Um, the... Complete Husband by Lou Priolo I usually give for husbands and The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace those are probably the best resources for people to consider the roles of marriage okay. 
And then here's another question. Are you familiar with Piper's view of the divorce clauses in Matthew being referring to Joseph and not being married yet but betrothed? Mm -hmm. What would you make of that view? He even says himself that it's a a rarely held position, but he holds it. And he wrote a book and... He's wrong. Okay. Why is he wrong? Because it's not exegetically sound. Because Joseph was married, technically, to her. So to say it's just a pre-engagement program, uh, I should say the pre-engagement, why then would that be permissible and not when the marriage was contracted, which it already was legally? So I can't see the distinction that he tries to hold. I I don't think it holds um, common sense-wise. And, you know, what's he do? What's he do with 1 Corinthians 7? Does he even, does he allow for that? If he doesn't allow for that, then I think he's not being even exegetically honest. I mean, Paul says the believer's not bound. So what, what, what does he do with that? So I understand why he's trying to protect it. I grew up in a, uh, in a fundamentalist Baptist context where uh, the one book was written by a guy who was a pastor in uh, Philadelphia, and he just said, you know, if we allow this, the whole society will unravel so that we can't allow any grounds for divorce and any grounds for remarriage. So my little Baptist church, they said, well, you know, adultery is grounds for divorce, but no remarriage. And he wanted to get remarried, and they said, you can't do it, you have to stay single. So <clears throat> I think he's wrong because I don't think his exegesis holds. So That's good. And there's guys in the area that are good friends that hold that, you know. And I just think that puts people under. So in other words, if Joseph could divorce his wife, Mary, because she was pregnant, and that was called righteous, right? Okay. If Mary had committed adultery after they had, you know, sexual union, why would she, why would they be bound? I mean, what's the difference? Legally or morally or... You know, so I, I just I'm confused, you know, in terms of the whole argument. And and the marriage betrothal back then was binding. Yeah, that's because he, because he being a righteous man didn't want to put up to to public disgrace was willing to what divorce her. So you're saying that the the betrothal and the marriage are very similar in contractual. They were in a sense, legally covenant. They were legally the exact same thing. It's because it says he was going to divorce her. So a divorce means a severing of a marriage, you know, a marriage covenant. So if it was okay during the, you know, engagement period, why would it be wrong after the engagement period? I just don't understand when legally there's no real distinction between them. So Piper would have to, you know, enlighten me you know, why that's the case. Um, somebody who is married to somebody who has abused them um, over and over and over again, but will claim to be a believer. Um, you mean the spouse that's claiming to be a believer? Yes. Abuser. Yes. And they're not <clears throat> keeping in line with their profession or what the Bible would say a Christian is. Mm-hmm. And she divorces him because of his continual abuse. 
uh, though he would make a profession, would he fall under that category in Corinthians 7 as an unbeliever? Yes, but here's the problem. This is why church discipline is so important. Let's just make it, say they're, you know, whatever membership is, you know, for eternal city. They all signed the thing. They went through the thing. He should be excommunicated for non-repentant abuse, physical abuse, and declared an unbeliever. Only God knows his heart, but functionally, you know, Matthew says, if he doesn't listen to the church, treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's an apostate. You put him out. Now I think we're in 1 Corinthians 7. You've got a guy that's functionally abandoned his wife, according to the elder's decision, and she has grounds for divorce. But the problem is nobody thinks church discipline is significant. Now here's the deal. Okay, I don't know how you all work here, but, uh, you know, Somebody would come to our church, you know, knowing you, knowing the church, if they were a member here and they wanted to join, you know, I would believe I would take them as a believer. Yeah, but just because somebody says I'm a believer doesn't make them a believer, right? <clears throat> Any more than I think I'm a parrot makes me a parrot. You know, uh, I can't declare myself a Christian. What makes me a Christian? Being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, does anybody know that? No, we can't see it, but we can do what? We watch a person, his, his life, and then what he says. And we make, a we make a decision on that. And most church discipline that I've been involved in, the people still say, I'm a believer. And they say, the elders are a bunch of jerks. And we go, no, we can't treat you like a Christian because you're stealing, okay? You're, you're constantly doing drugs and selling drugs, okay? This is not, this is not Christian behavior. So we're going to treat you like a non-Christian. If a man doesn't, you know, feed his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. And so we've excommunicated guys who won't work. You want to act like a pagan? We're going to treat you like a pagan. Okay. Now, where's the wife? <clears throat> we don't say she has to, but she's got biblical grounds. He's not providing for the family. He's not working. He's smoking everything, you know, blowing it on, you know, crack cocaine or whatever. And, and the bottom line is, okay, we're going to treat you like an unbeliever. Uh, is it ideal? No, but the woman gets the protection. So uh, I tell people, <clears throat> have you gone through church discipline? They come in, what's church discipline? Okay, no, the church needs to protect that innocent person. What if they're not a member of a local church? I don't treat them as a Christian, right? Yeah. I can, I can walk around claiming to be LeBron James, right? Isn't that stupid? So, An old white guy that can't jump, you know, 70 years old, saying, I'm, you know, if I'm LeBron James, I could walk into the Cleveland College. They're not going to let me in the locker room, you know. Just because I say I'm a Christian doesn't make me We've been so, uh, so uh, caught up in Americanism. I am who I am. Well, doggone it, if I, if I say I'm a woman... Jenner's not a woman, even though he wants to be called Jennifer. He's, he's not. He's been born a man. He's a man, and he will be judged as a man before God. Okay. See, so, so just because I claim to be a Christian doesn't make me a Christian. So if the guy says he's a Christian and he's not submitted to any church, see, I think the American church is so abnormal in that way. Nobody's running around Jerusalem unbaptized, right? The minute they were baptized, 
they were under the apostles and everybody knew. It's just like Japan. You get, you get baptized in Japan now? You're a foreigner. You have deserted Japanese. You know, you, you're into that Western religion. You're not part of us anymore. And uh, bottom line is we just uh, make everything so individualized. You know, if I say I'm a Christian, I must be a Christian. So you would agree with Mark Dever when he says, if you're not a member of a local church, how do we even know you're a Christian? That's right. That's right. How do I know, you know, the person's words are meaningful unless somebody has sat down and examined them and say, this is believable. We can believe this guy's a Christian because he used to live this way. He's different. He's got the doctrine straight, but he's also got a life to back it up. Is he perfect? No. You know, so somebody could come in and, you know, get baptized right away, good. But church discipline puts them out. That's what it, the Protestant Reformation said three things, and others too, but three things of a true church. They preach the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, you know, through, excuse me, faith alone. They administer the sacraments correctly, and they practice church discipline because everybody was a Christian. Everybody was baptized in medieval times. And you look around and go, we're the godly people. So church discipline, you know, is not a, 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 when we come on, we say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Go make converts. No, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So again, somebody who's not part of the visible church, yeah, they could possibly be saved, the thief on the cross. But the bottom line is that's the exception. The rule is, you know, and that's why I take this church seriously, even though we're not part of the same denomination, because they preach the gospel and do those things. So for that guy who says he's a Christian, I go, functionally, I can't treat you as a Christian. Step up your membership process. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I love you guys. Um, I, was, I wasn't paid to say that. He was not. Um, we, we, just, we just formally introduced our membership process because we're a new church plan. Right. And uh, we just recognized our first official member last week, this brother right here in the front. Um, so that's why he gets to carry the questions. Exactly why. <clears throat> He's the only member. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, Eddie and I are members because we're elders. But Okay. Anyone have any more questions before we pray and... Any, any answers bring up more questions that you'd like to stand up and ask? I'll be around if they're too private. I could you know, ask them privately. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that there are people here who would love to ask you some questions um, due to the sensitive nature of their situations. And, and praise God that George is willing to give you his time. Like he just said, if you have an issue that's so private, I can't ask it in front of everyone, come talk to me. It's fantastic. Thank you, brother. We love you. We thank you for your service to us. Let's pray and end our time together. George, would you pray for us? Father in heaven, we come to you and humble ourselves. Uh, Lord, uh, you have every reason to divorce us like you did Israel because we've been unfaithful. But Lord, you've put your Holy Spirit in us and you're pounding away and making us more like the Savior. We really want to be faithful to you. We don't want to be spiritual adulterers. Lord, help us not to go back like the dog to its vomit, a pig to the mud, but Lord, to uh, 
uh, ever run strongly into your arms to be cleansed again and refreshed and go out and make progress. We know we'll never be perfect, and that's the tension, and yet, Lord, we can make progress. We pray that we will. Lord, make the marriages here safe and sound, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.